already suggested, the, uh, the organizers of this, the, the officials, um, suggested some names to, to nudge the public. They suggested Ernest Shackleton, the, the explorer. They suggested um, uh, Falcon and, and a couple others, but they said, we'll, we'll leave it up to the vote. Uh, well, after the, after the voting ended, the far and away winner of this vote was Bodie McBoatface. That was the, the name. Some of you probably heard this, this story. This is a true story about six years ago. Uh, Bodie McBoatface won uh, the, the vote, at which point the authorities uh, went back on their promise to leave it up to a vote to the public and rejected that name and just chose the name themselves. They chose a name from the list, but they didn't like the second name. The third name was ridiculous, so they took the fourth place uh, in, in the voting after all of that. Anyways, here is my point, simply that law, logically, must be transcendent. Right? Otherwise, we're left with, with inconsistent confusion. Right? Bodie McBoatface, kind of a power struggle. Or, or it's just simply relative. Uh, the only ultimately meaningful source of law is God himself. And of course, that's the, the biblical view of law. Uh, it's a revelation of the unchanging holy God himself. God's law is. Exodus 20 begins, and God spoke all these words. Uh, Of course, the Ten Commandments come from God. It's a revelation of God in that sense, but I I want you to think about it even even beyond that, in a much higher sense. The Ten Commandments reveal the the character, the very character of God. Uh, one, One important point to make from this is that the Ten Commandments then are not arbitrary. They're not arbitrary. God didn't think up the Ten Commandments because this is just how he wanted to design this world. He could have designed a different, another world with, with a different set of morality. The Ten Commandments reveal the unchanging character of God. One, one writer puts it this way, the commandments not only show us what God wants, they show us what God is like. And that's, really, that's really true of any set of laws. Any set of laws reflects the one who made the law, the one who gives the law. That's, that's true in our society. Think about how laws in our society reflect the, the character, at least of, of some majority, uh, the values and the nature of our society. We have laws about mandatory education. What does that reflect? It reflects some value in education, some commitment that education should be available to all. Uh, we have... Uh, a significant law for a long time, the American Disabilities Act. What does that reflect about our society? That we believe that those who have handicaps or, or various difficulties should be able to take part in daily life. Uh, we could, of course, give examples that reflect negatively on the character and values of our society as well. But think about the Ten Commandments. Think about how they reveal the very character of God. They're not just rules that he came up with. The Second Commandment reflects the fact that he's a spirit. Uh, He can't be understood by or or worshipped by images or statues. The the sixth commandment, you shall not kill. God is the the giver of life, the preserver of life. He's sovereign over life and death. That's who he is. Uh, The seventh commandment, uh, concerning adultery, God is a God of faithfulness. He's a covenant God. Uh, The ninth commandment uh, about lying, Uh, God is a God of truth. He cares about truth. That's who he is. The tenth commandment against coveting. God God can be trusted. He's a providing God. Something too easily missed, I think, um, 
We think we have to look somewhere else in the Bible to see the, the character and the grace of God. You know, the law of God is over here, and over here we see the love and the grace of God. Um, Phil Riken comments on the Ten Commandments. They reveal the sovereignty, the justice, the holiness, the honor, the faithfulness, providence, truthfulness, and love of God. It's, it's a, a freeing blessing that, that the, the law of God is... Uh, has its source in God himself, that it's not simply the product of the whims of a majority um, or endlessly twisted by, by different humans and their desire for power or, or pleasure. Uh, Ronald Reagan once, once quipped, he said, I have wondered at times what the Ten Commandments would have looked like if Moses had run them through the, the Congress uh, before publishing them. Uh, no doubt thinking about all the, the selfishness and posturing that would have endlessly amended uh, God's perfect uh, commands to reflect human whims. So I want to challenge you to think about this question as we, as we go along in this series. Where do the Ten Commandments come from? What, why these Ten Commandments? Uh, Plato, the, uh, the philosopher, not the play stuff, Plato um, was no believer, but he nevertheless understood that law had to, had to have its source in transcendent God. Uh, and he posed this thoughtful question. Does God command the law because the law is good? Or is the law good because God commands it? Does God command the law because it's good? Or is the law good simply because God commands it? Well, the the biblical answer is sort of, well, both, yes. But it's not arbitrary. God God poured his own character into the Ten Commandments. He he could not have given us a totally different law. Uh, His law reflects who he is. This, this is a really significant thing for us to grasp in, in beginning a study on the Ten Commandments. I, I want to touch on three implications of this that you see on your outline there. Three implications. Just briefly, I, I hope we'll incorporate and touch on these things again throughout this series. But, but the first is this. A first implication of the fact that, that law reflects God's character himself. Is that, that sin, breaking a command, is an offense against God himself. It's an offense against God himself. In other words, it's not just breaking a command. It's not just to to up the ante a little bit. It's not just disobeying God, which is very serious. It's on a much higher plane than that. It's offending the very person and character of God. This is why R.C. Sproul liked to refer to sin, any sin, even sins we might think are not such a big deal, as cosmic treason. It's an assault on God himself. There's a real sense in which we can say that God is his law. It's not something totally separate from him. It's not arbitrary. Think about how this works. Just a few examples from the Ten Commandments. To to worship anything other than God, first commandment, is not just to break a command. It's to deny the sovereignty of God himself. To to steal the Eighth Commandment or to covet the Tenth Commandment is not just to break a command. It's to deny God's providence. To to lie, the Ninth Commandment, is to deny or reject the the truthfulness of God, that God is truth, and so on. That's one implication. A second implication is that, more positively, is that we can and should delight in the law. 
We can and should delight in God's law. It's a gift of himself. It's a great gift to have a law that is good, is as good and unchanging and as just and as loving as God himself. Um, it's, it's a way that we can share in and know the goodness and provision of God. Uh, if you love God, you will love his law. Uh, that's maybe not our typical response to the idea of law. Probably in, in our, as, as fallen humans, we more naturally respond to the, the concept of law or regulations as negative, right? They're restrictive. They, they keep us from what we want to do. They keep us from a sense of freedom. There may be a necessary drudgery at best is how we often think about law or regulations, and, and many may be that way, but, but have you f- reflected on how the psalmist, as we sang, as we read this morning, how can the psalmist say over and over again, I love your law. I delight in your law. It, it's my study all day long. I, I, I'm excited as, by your law as I am by a, a box of treasure. That sounds very weird to many people. Maybe it sounds kind of weird to us. I'm not sure that we could really say that fully. But it's the only and logical response to really understanding that the Ten Commandments reveal God himself. They're they're a gracious gift to us. Uh, I I could say, if I really think about it, that I deeply appreciate traffic laws. Maybe sometimes they seem a little restrictive or or annoying, but if you think about it, they they keep me safe. Keep my children safe. They they give freedom to drive on the road in in relative safety. I, about 15 years ago, I went to Costa Rica, and they have the, basically the same trappings of traffic laws that we do. They have stop signs, they have stop lights, but they're all just suggestions. They're just there. There's there's no use of them or enforcement of them, and it's you know kind of crazy and a little terrifying to drive around there. And I, I came back with a greater appreciation for those laws. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson gives an illustration of. The, the psalmist loving the law and how that could be. Uh, he's, a, he's a big golf fan and uh, notes that his, his official rules of golf book is 578 pages long with 130 pages of endnotes. And um, you know, many of us would think, how could anyone have any interest in reading a book like that? It would be so boring, so cumbersome. Um, but the reality is many people are fascinated by the, the rules of golf, reading the, the golf rule book, 700 pages, talking about it, delighting in it. Um, but the rules of golf are, are designed to enhance the game, right? To make it more fair, more enjoyable. Uh, that, that's the goal, more clear. In some sense, you could say golf is the rules of golf. Without the rule book, there is no golf. You're just whacking a ball completely aimlessly, right? Uh, sort of like we can say God is his law. And so people who really love golf can have pleasure reading and talking about the rules of golf. A psalmist who really loves God, a Christian who really loves God, cannot but love his law. So that's the second implication. Then finally, uh, just very briefly, uh, God's commands, because they reflect his character, uh, are universally and forever binding. They're universally and forever enforced. They, they don't change. God doesn't change. How could his commands change? How could his law change? Well, that gives rise, in part, then, to our second big question, though, for today. 
because of uh, trying to understand this, trying to relate this to some of the some statements in the New Testament, for example, our second question is: What is the relation between law and grace? What is the relation between law and grace? This also is such an important question as we study God's commands. Why does it come up? There would be quite a few reasons it comes up. Um, one is just the logic, uh, thinking about the grace of God. If grace is free, if Christ died once for all, if, if my sins, past and present and future, are forgiven once for all, there's nothing that I can do to earn God's favor, well, then maybe it doesn't matter what I do. Right? Maybe... maybe God's commands has, has no more obligation on, on the believer. He's forgiven. He's free from that. Well, we read one place this morning already where Paul addressed that exact conclusion. He, he did that multiple times to say, that's crazy. You don't understand what I'm saying. We'll, we'll come back to that. Uh, some Christians, though, have pointed to, to some of Paul's statements. Uh, Romans 6.14, I read earlier, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace, not under law. Galatians 5.18, Paul says, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And so Christians, some Christians have concluded we're not under the law anymore. It's simple as that. We're free in Christ from duty to his commands. He, he, he obeyed the law. He forgave us. We simply live in gratitude for the gospel led by the Spirit. Uh, law is not an obligation on believers anymore. Well, I want to I want to answer this this question in, in the three points you see there on on your outline. What is the relation between law and grace? So, the three three points. The first one is this: is to note that the Ten Commandments were given in the context of grace. The Ten Commandments are given in the context of grace. Uh, look again at at our brief passage from Exodus twenty, the introduction to the Ten Commandments, and God spoke all these words saying. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. How is God introducing his commands there? He's not giving these commands saying, here's what you need to do if you're going to be my people. Right? Here, here's a checklist I will measure you against. I'll, I'll weigh the scales of your obedience, and I'll decide if you're worthy of, of my love and acceptance. That, that's not what he's saying. He, is, he begins the Ten Commandments of all things by saying, I am, I already am your God. All right? I, I have chosen you because of my sheer pleasure and mercy. I've saved you from slavery in Egypt. I brought you into relationship with myself. I've given you great promises. And, and in light of that, here's what life with me should look like. That's the context of the Ten Commandments. Here's a ten-point summary of who you already are as chosen and loved children of God. And that's how God's law comes to you. In the context of God's already having chosen you in Christ and shown you His grace and promised to be your God, the law comes after grace. You see over and over in Paul's letters, how this works in the Christian life. Uh, just We see it throughout the Bible, but, but really starkly in Paul's letters. What, what's the basic outline of Paul's letters? Not, not every one or exact in an exact way, but certainly for Ephesians and Romans and, and some others. The first half of the letter is what theologians call the indicative. Paul explains the gospel. Right? This is who you are in God. This is what God has done for you. 
And then the second half of the letter, here are his instructions to you in light of that. It would be a totally different religion if Paul's letters were flipped, right? But he says, this is who you are in Christ. This is what God has done for you. Now here's how you should live that out. Here's how you can be who you already are in Christ. That's how the commands function. So in trying to understand passages in Paul, particularly that sound like he's pitting law against grace, or like law was something in the past, now we have grace, we're done with that. Uh, part of the answer is we need to remember that, that nowhere in the whole Bible does grace not precede law. Is law given outside of the context of grace? And in fact, that's not quite the best way to say it. I, I want to say it as it is in, in letter B on your outline there, that law is part of the gift of grace. Law is part of God's gift of grace. So from the beginning, God, God created you and me and all people to be like him, to be image bearers of God. Gen- Genesis makes that clear. God's creation of Adam and Eve. Adam sinned and, and fell and, and broke and twisted who he and everyone after him was created perfectly to be. And now the salvation of Christ can be described in part as his recreating you into who you were created to be, reestablishing you as an image bearer of God. Right? Someone who is called and enabled again to reflect the truth of God that's commanded in the Ten Commandments. Enabled to reflect the faithfulness, the contentment, the trust, the worship, the love that are summarized in the Ten Commandments. You've been restored to it. The grace of God in Christ enables you by his strength, by the new heart he gives you to walk in the good way, to walk in the way of freedom, the good way that you were created for that's summarized in the Ten Commandments. Without God's command as, as a guide, as a rule for our lives, what, what does it mean to live for Jesus? What does it mean to glorify God? Or, or any other phrase you might use about the Christian life. What does it mean to love? The, the Ten Commandments summarize the content of glorifying God. They summarize the content of loving, of life in Christ. John in 1 John 5 writes this, For this is the love of God. That we, what, just feel it really strongly in our hearts? No, hopefully we do. That's part of it. But he says the love of God is that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome, John says. Commands can feel burdensome, right, to the degree that we rebel against them, to the degree that they say something other than what we want. But they're not burdensome because they're a gift of grace. We don't have time to... Look in detail at those, those several verses where Paul says something like, we are not under law. Uh, suffice it to say this for now. What Paul means by that, when Paul uses the word law in, in a number of different ways to refer to different things. But the places where he speaks of not being under law, what he means is law in and of itself is, is not your master. Right? It's, it's not the determiner of your destiny. Law has no power over you. You're not under it so that it can condemn you. Right? That's, that's what he's saying. It, it, it's, you're not under it in that sense because Christ obeyed, because Christ died. Law cannot condemn you. It's, it doesn't have its foot on your neck like that anymore. 
It's your relationship to Christ and his grace that determines your standing before God now. And, and we, could count, we, we could cite countless verses in the scriptures that, that show that Paul most emphatically does not mean by under law that we don't have any relation to God's law anymore. That it's, that it's not an obligation to believers. Uh, again, Paul himself takes up this question to make sure we understand. Uh, Romans 3, Paul has explained, explained the free gospel of grace. And then he asks, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? Does, does the offer of salvation by faith alone, by grace alone, does this mean we have no relation by the law that we're setting it aside? Paul says, by no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. He says we establish the law. Now the law can actually be used in the way it was intended to be used to guide believers. 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says we are under the law of Christ. Romans 6, we read earlier as well. Again, this is another place where Paul speaks of, he says, uh, speaks of being not under law but under grace. But immediately, the next sentence, to make sure we understand what he means, he says, what then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? Is, does God, do God's commands not still command us anymore? He says, may it never be. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you're committed and have been freed from your sin. You became slaves of righteousness. Uh, Paul couldn't be any more clear He's not saying your, your salvation doesn't mean that now it doesn't matter what you do. You've become slaves of obedience from the heart to God. And that's a, a blessing, not a, a burden. It's, it's salvation. And so in the church, we, we can't preach the gospel, the gifts of grace, without also preaching the gift of God's law, uh, particularly the Ten Commandments. Uh, in Ephesians 2, Paul says we were created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, right? Obeying the Ten Commandments, living out the way we're created to live. Likewise, we can't preach the law how we ought to live without preaching grace. And the gospel is the foundation of that. A lot of preaching today errs on one side or the other, one, one of those two places. Sometimes, maybe more in, in evangelical circles, in preaching grace and wanting to communicate how free grace is and, and to preserve it and not con- contaminate it, uh, preaching excludes any discussion of sin or law at all. And, and, and as we'll talk about in doing that, it destroys any meaningful understanding of grace. In, in maybe in, in more mainstream churches that have abandoned any doctrine of the atonement, uh, preaching is, is what we might call moralism. It's simply what you should do, how you should live. It's, it's biblical tips for parenting, tips for good health, tips for money management, um, tips for being a kind person. All these things may be good and true, but, it, but divorced from, from the, our deadness in sin and new life in Christ. And the power of the gospel is the motivating and enabling power for, for any of that, for doing any of that. So let me expand on that just in the, in the final point there on your outline that, that says two errors. Uh, two theological terms for messing up this relationship between law and grace are legalism and antinomianism. Two big theological words. Maybe a little more familiar with the former. 
Uh, but I want to just touch on both real quick. Legalism. What is legalism? Legalism is requiring in your life or in the lives of others uh, what God does not. It's going beyond God's commands. Um, or legalism is trying to make the law do what it can't do apart from grace, what it's not able to do. Uh, there are many examples in the Bible. The classic example would be the Pharisees, right? Going beyond the, the law of God. They made more rules on top of God's commands that became for them a matter of absolute right and wrong and, and sin. Jesus challenged them on this, for example, in, in a bunch of ways, but for example, with the Sabbath day. Uh, not because God didn't have a clear standard in law for the Sabbath day for the blessing of his people, but because the Pharisees held people to all kinds of rules beyond God's law as a matter of sin. That's legalism. Again, legalism also makes the law do what it cannot do. The the Pharisees, at least some that Jesus confronted, they, they trusted that they were right with God because of their outward performance, because they kept a list when their heart was not loving God. Jesus tells the parable about the Pharisee praying at the temple. He's, he's staying there bragging to God about what a good person he's been and is. The legalism destroys the gospel because of taking any credit at all for favor with God uh, away from God. God gets all the credit uh, for, for our relationship with him, for our salvation. And, and it, it destroys the gospel by turning the Christian life not into a, a relationship of grace and gratitude, but of rules and performance. Uh, legalism, in, in some ways, is sort of the default error of the human heart. It's uh, sort of natural to all of us. It, it's hard even for, for believers to get rid of it completely. You know, when you look down on other Christians with whom you disagree or condescend, you're being a legalist. Forgetting God's grace. Whenever you feel you can't forgive yourself for something you've done, that's legalism. That's God's prerogative. It's his grace. When you turn obedience to God into a checklist of rules apart from your heart, when you, like the Pharisees, when you and I stand in worship here, we stand and sing and we bow our heads and pray and our, our minds are a million miles away, we feel like we're doing something before God, but we're acting like legalists. And I want to be clear, legalism is not being careful or detailed or exacting in our, our understanding of God's commands and obeying them. That's, that's faithfulness. But, but the trick is, it's hard for selfish fallen humans to do that and to not want some credit, not feel good about ourselves or, or compare ourselves to others. That's the trap of legalism. Antinomianism. What is antinomianism? It's anti-nomos, anti-law. It's, it's neglecting God's law or downplaying it. Some people simply don't take God's law seriously. Uh, other Christians have con- uh, concluded that God's law simply doesn't apply to believers anymore. That, that law is the enemy of grace. Um, the law of Christ is simply love. That's all you need to know. Uh, An antinomian might say, well, God loves me the way I am. I I don't need to be stifled by law. Um, Or this is how I am. God is gracious. God simply accepts me as I am. That's the end of the story. Now, here's part of the trick. We we tend to think of legalism and antinomianism as being on on some kind of a spectrum. 
and, and, and you want to be in the middle. You don't want to be on the ends, right? And, and one is sort of an antidote for the other. So we might think, well, if someone's neglecting God's law, they don't think it applies to them. Well, they, they need more law, right? They need more Ten Commandments in their life. Someone's leaving, living legalistically by, you know, life is a set of rules. They're strict legalistic rules for others. They're looking down on others. We think, well, they need, they need less rules. They need to lighten up. They need more grace in their life. All of those thoughts are legalistic. Um, the fact is that legalism and, and antinomianism are not really opposites. They're really kind of the same thing. They, they have the same root. They're, they're both different flavors of legalism. They have, they have the both the, the same root problem. The root problem is, is abstracting, separating God from his law, abstracting grace from law when they can't be separated. Legalism separates law from God and his grace and, and leaves it to do what it cannot do. Make me a better person, right? Gain favor with God. Uh, it leaves laws as a list of do's and don'ts. Antinomianism does the same thing. It separates God from his law and leaves a God who doesn't really care much about holiness. Um, it, it creates not, not like the free grace of the scriptures, but a cheap grace. That, that means nothing for your life. Both of those errors miss that a massive part of God's grace to us includes the ability and the freedom of walking in his way, walking in his law, according to his character, as he created us to. Just think briefly about how Adam and Eve's fall illustrates this. We we might ask, Adam and Eve's sin there in the garden, were, were they acting like legalists or antinomians? Were they adding to God's law, depending on God's law, or were they neglecting it, pushing it aside? Well, they were antinomians, right? They, they, they rejected God's law. That's not fair, God. We're not doing that. But at root, if you think about it, they're simply demonstrating that, that root of legalism, right? Separating God from his law. They, they abstracted God and his goodness and his grace from his law. And they're left with something that, that felt restrictive and unfair, we're not doing that. Rather than seeing it as a part of his kind and generous care for them there in the garden. So as we look at, at the law in detail, the Ten Commandments in coming weeks, these are some of the things I most hope that we remember. That, that both law and gospel are expressions of God's grace to you. That they're inseparable from each other. Uh, that your salvation doesn't include just begrudgingly keeping a list of rules, but loving God's law as you love himself. Becoming, as Paul wrote, as we read earlier, obedient from the heart, loving and delighting in God and his commands as a good gift to us. So may that be true of us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we thank you for this time to consider your word this morning. Uh, We pray that you would help us in uh, the coming weeks to understand Uh, your commands rightly, to understand them rightly as part of your gift of grace, part of what you're creating us to be. Um, Help us, Lord, to to have the love and delight of the psalmist uh, in your law. Uh, Lord, we we pray that through this you you would make us more like Christ. And we pray all this in his name. Amen.